Chapter 5 of Liza of Lambeth by W. Somerset Maugham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Hatton43, blog de la quinzaine.wordpress.com. As soon as Liza had recovered herself, she started examining the people on the break, and first of all she took stock of the woman whom Jim Blakeston had with him. This is my missus, said Jim, pointing to her with his thumb. You ain't been down in the street much, have you? said Liza by way of making the acquaintance. Nah, answered Mrs. Blakeston. My youngster's been down with the measles, and I've had my work cut out looking after him. Oh, and is he all right now? Yes, he's getting on fine, and Jim wants to go to Chingford today, and he says to me, well, he says, you come along to Chingford too, it'll do you good. And he says, you can leave Polly, she's my eldest, you know, you can leave Polly, says he, to look after the kids. So I says, well, I don't mind if I do, says I. Meanwhile, Liza was looking at her. First, she noticed her dress. She wore a black coat and a funny, old-fashioned black bonnet. Then, examining the woman herself, she saw a middle-sized, stout person anywhere between thirty and forty years old. She had a large, fat face with a big mouth, and her hair was curiously parted in the middle and plastered down on each side of the head in little plaits. One could see that she was a woman of great strength, notwithstanding evident traces of hard work and much childbearing. Liza knew all the other passengers, and now that everyone was settled down and had got over the excitement of departure, they had time to greet one another. They were delighted to have Liza among them, for where she was there was no dullness. Her attention was first of all taken up by a young coster, who had arrayed himself in the traditional costume, grey suit, tight trousers and shiny buttons in profusion what cheer bill she cried to him what cheer liza he answered you are got up dossy you'll knock em now nah, then liza kemp said his companion turning round with mock indignation you let my johnny alone if you come getting round him i'll give you what for all right clary sharp i don't want him answered liza i've got one of my own and that's a good handful ain't it tom tom was delighted and Unable to find a repartee, in his pleasure, gave Liza a great nudge with his elbow. "'Ooh, I say,' said Liza, putting her hand to her side. "'Take care of my ribs. You'll break em. "'Them's not your ribs,' shouted a candid friend. "'Them's your whalebones you're afraid of breaking.' "'Gone!' "'Have you got whalebones?' said Tom, with affected simplicity, putting his arm round her waist to feel. "'Now nah, then,' she said, "'keep off the grass.' Well, I only wanted to know if he'd got any. Gone. You don't get round me like that. He still kept as he was. Now nah, then, she repeated. Take your hand away. If you touch me there, you'll have to marry me. That's just what I wants to do, Liza. Shut it, she answered cruelly, and drew his arm away from her waist. The horses scampered on, and the man behind blew his horn with vigour. Don't bust yourself, Governor, said one of the passengers to him, when he made a particularly discordant sound. They drove along eastwards, and, as the hour grew later, the streets became more filled and the traffic greater. At last they got on the road to Chingford, and caught up numbers of other vehicles going in the same direction. Donkey chaise, pony carts, tradesmen's carts, dog carts, drags, brakes, every conceivable kind of wheel thing, all filled with people. The wretched donkey dragging along four solid ratepayers to the pair of stout horses, easily managing a couple of score. They exchanged cheers and greetings as they passed. 
the red lion brake being noticeable above all for its uproariousness. As the day wore on, the sun became hotter, and the road seemed more dusty and threw up a greater heat. I am get not, was the common cry, and everyone began to puff and sweat. The ladies removed their cloaks and capes, and the men, following their example, took off their coats and sat in their shirt-sleeves, whereupon ensued much banter of a not particularly edifying kind respecting the garments which each person would like to remove, which showed that the innuendo of French farce is not so unknown to the upright, honest Englishman as might be supposed. At last came in sight the halfway house, where the horses were to have a rest and a sponge down. They had been talking of it for the last quarter mile, and when at length it was observed on top of a hill, a cheer broke out, and some thirsty wag began to sing Rule Britannia, whilst others burst forth with a different national ditty, Beer, Glorious Beer. They drew up before the pub entrance, and all climbed down as quickly as they could. The bar was besieged, and potmen and barmaids were quickly busy drawing beer and handing it over to the eager folk outside. The idyll of Corydon and Phyllis. Gallantry ordered that the faithful swain and the amorous shepherdess should drink out of one and the same pot. Hurry up and have your whack, said Corydon, politely handing the foaming bowl for his fair one to drink from. Phyllis, without replying, raised it to her lips and drank deep. The swain watched anxiously. Here, give us a chance, he said, as the pot was raised higher and higher, and its contents appeared to be getting less and less. At this, the amorous shepherdess stopped and handed the pot to her lover. Well, I'm dashed, said Corydon, looking into it, and added, I guess you know a thing or two. Then, with courtly grace, putting his own lips to the place where had been those of his beloved, finished the pint. Golummy, remarked the shepherdess, smacking her lips. That was something like and she put out her tongue and licked her lips, and then breathed deeply. The faithful swain, having finished, gave a long sigh and said, Well, I could do with some more. For the matter of that, I could do with a gargle. Thus encouraged, the gallant returned to the bar and soon brought out a second pint. You have first pop, amorously remarked Phyllis, and he took a long drink and handed the pot to her. She, with maiden modesty, turned it so as to have a different part to drink from, but he remarked as he saw her, You are bloomin' particular. Then, unwilling to grieve him, she turned it back again, and applied her ruby lips to the place where his had been. Now we shan't be long, she remarked as she handed him back the pot. The faithful swain took out of his pocket a short, clay pipe, blew through it, filled it, and began to smoke, while Phyllis sighed at the thought of the cool liquid gliding down her throat, and with the pleasing recollection gently stroked her stomach. Then Corydon spat, and immediately his love said, I can spit farther than that. I bet you can't. She tried and did. He collected himself and spat again, further than before. She followed him, and in this idyllic contest they remained till the tootling horn warned them to take their places. At last they reached Chingford, and here the horses were taken out and the drag, on which they were to lunch, drawn up in a sheltered spot. They were all rather hungry, but as it was not yet feeding time, they scattered to have drinks meanwhile. Liza and Tom, with Sally and her young man, went off together to the nearest public house, and as they drank beer, Harry, who was a great sportsman, gave them a graphic account of a prize fight he had seen on the previous Saturday evening which had been rendered specially memorable 
by one man being so hurt that he had died from the effects. It had evidently been a very fine affair, and Harry said that several swells from the West End had been present, and he related their ludicrous efforts to get in without being seen by anyone, and their terror when someone to frighten them called out, Copper! Then Tom and he entered into a discussion on the subject of boxing, in which Tom, being a shy and undogmatic sort of person, was entirely worsted. After this, they strolled back to the break and found things being prepared for luncheon. The hampers were brought out and emptied, and the bottles of beer in great profusion made many a thirsty mouth thirstier. "'Come along, ladies and gentlemen, if you are gentlemen,' shouted the coachman. "'The animals is now going to be fed.' "'Go on away,' answered somebody. "'We're not animals. We don't drink water.' "'You're too clever,' remarked the coachman. "'I can see you've just come from the board school.' As the former speaker was a lady of quite mature appearance, the remark was not without its little irony. The other man blew his horn by way of grace, at which Liza called out to him, "'Don't do that. You'll bust. I know you will, and if you bust, you'll quite spoil my dinner.' Then they all set to. Pork pies, saveloys, sausages, cold potatoes, hard-boiled eggs, cold bacon, veal, ham, crabs and shrimps, cheese, butter, cold suet puddings and treacle, gooseberry tarts, cherry tarts, butter, bread, more sausages, and yet again pork pies. They devoured the provisions like ravening beasts, stolidly, silently, earnestly, in large mouthfuls which they shoved down their throats unmasticated. The intelligent foreigner, seeing them thus dispose of their food, would have understood why England is a great nation. He would have understood why Britons never, never will be slaves. They never stopped except to drink, and then at each gulp they emptied their glasses, no heel-taps, and still they ate, and still they drank, but as all things must cease, they stopped at last, and a long sigh of content broke from their two-and-thirty throats. Then the gathering broke up, and the good folk paired themselves and separated. Harry and his lady strolled off to secluded byways in the forest, so that they might discourse of their loves and digest their dinner. Tom had all morning been waiting for this happy moment. He had counted on the expansive effect of a full stomach to thaw his Liza's coldness, and he had pictured himself sitting on the grass with his back against the trunk of a spreading chestnut tree, with his arm round Liza's waist, and her head resting affectionately on his manly bosom. Liza, too, had foreseen the separation into couples after dinner, and had been racking her brains to find a means of getting out of it. I don't want him slobbering about me, she said. It gives me the sick, all this kissing and cuddling. She scarcely knew why she objected to his caresses, but they bored her and made her cross. But luckily, the blessed institution of marriage came to her rescue, for Jim and his wife naturally had no particular desire to spend the afternoon together, and Liza, seeing a little embarrassment on their part, proposed that they should go for a walk together in the forest. Jim agreed at once, and with pleasure but Tom was dreadfully disappointed. He hadn't the courage to say anything, but he glared at Blakeston. Jim smiled benignly at him, and Tom began to sulk. Then they began a funny walk through the woods. Jim tried to go on with Liza, and Liza was not at all disinclined to this, for she had come to the conclusion that Jim, notwithstanding his cheek, was not off a bad sort. But Tom kept walking alongside of them, and as Jim slightly quickened his pace so as to get Liza on in front, Tom quickened his, and Mrs. Blakeston, who didn't want to be left behind, 
had to break into a little trot to keep up with them. Jim tried also to get Liza all to himself in the conversation, and let Tom see that he was out in the cold, but Tom would break in with cross, sulky remarks, just to make the others uncomfortable. Liza at last got rather vexed with him. Strokes me you got out of bed the wrong way this morning, she said to him. He didn't think that when he said he'd come out with me. He emphasised the me. Liza shrugged her shoulders. You give me the ump, she said. If you wants to make a fool of yourself, you can go elsewhere and do it. I suppose you want me to go away now, he said angrily. I didn't say I did. All right, Liza, I won't stay where I'm not wanted. And turning on his heel, he marched off, striking through the underwood into the midst of the forest. He felt extremely unhappy as he wandered on, and there was a choky feeling in his throat as he thought of Liza. She was very unkind and ungrateful, and he wished he had never come to Chingford. She might so easily have come for a walk with him, instead of going with that beast of a Blakeston. She wouldn't ever do anything for him, and he hated her. But all the same, he was a poor, foolish thing in love, and he began to feel that perhaps he had been a little exacting and a little forward to take offence. And then he wished he had never said anything, and he wanted so much to see her and make it up. He made his way back to Chingford, hoping she would not make him wait too long. Liza was a little surprised when Tom turned and left them. "'What has he got the needle about?' she said. "'Why, he's jealous,' answered Jim with a laugh. "'Tom, jealous?' "'Yes, he's jealous of me.' "'Well, he ain't got no cause to be jealous of anyone.' "'That he ain't,' said Liza, and continued by telling him all about Tom, how he had wanted to marry her, and how she wouldn't have him, and how she had only agreed to come to Chingford with him, on the understanding that she should preserve her entire freedom. Jim listened sympathetically, but his wife paid no attention. She was doubtless engaged in thought respecting her household or her family. When they got back to Chingford, they saw Tom standing in solitude looking at them. Liza was struck by the woebegone expression on his face. She felt she had been cruel to him, and leaving the Blakestons went up to him. I say, Tom, she said, don't take on so. I didn't mean it. He was bursting to apologise for his behaviour. You know, Tom, she went on, I'm rather hasty, and I'm sorry I said what I did. Oh, Liza, you are good. You ain't cross with me. Me? Nah, it's you that ought to be cross. You are a good sort, Liza. You ain't vexed with me. Give me Liza every time, that's what I say, he answered as his face lit up. Come along and have tea, and then we'll go for a donkey ride. The donkey ride was a great success. Liza was a little afraid at first, so Tom walked by her side to take care of her. She screamed at the moment the beast began to trot, and clutched hold of Tom to save herself from falling. And as he felt her hand on his shoulder and heard her appealing cry, Oh, do hold me, I'm falling! He felt that he had never in his life been so deliciously happy. The whole party joined in, and it was proposed that they should have races, but in the first heat, when the donkeys broke into a canter, Liza fell off into Tom's arms, and the donkeys scampered on without her. "'I'll know what I'll do,' she said, when the runaway had been recovered. "'I'll ride him straddly-wise.' "'Go on,' said Sally. "'You can't with petticoats.' "'Yes, I can, and I will do.' So another donkey was procured, this time with a man's saddle. Putting her foot in the stirrup, she cocked her leg over and took her seat triumphantly. Neither modesty nor bashfulness was to be reckoned among Liza's faults, and in this position she felt quite at ease. "'I'll get along all right now, Tom,' 
she said. You go on and get yourself a moat and come and join in. The next race was perfectly uproarious. Liza kicked and beat her donkey with all her might, shrieking and laughing the white, and finally came in winner by a length. After that, they felt rather warm and dry and repaired to the public house to restore themselves and talk over the excitements of the racecourse. When they had drunk several pints of beer, Liza and Sally, their respective adorers and the Blakestons, walked round to find another means of amusing themselves. They were arrested by a coconut shy. Oh, let's have a shy, said Liza excitedly, at which the unlucky men had to pull out their coppers, while Sally and Liza made ludicrously bad shots at the coconuts. It looks so bloomin' easy, said Liza, brushing up her hair. But I can't hit the blasted thing. You have a shot, Tom. He and Harry were equally unskilful, but Jim got three coconuts running, and the proprietors of the show began to look on him with some concern. You are a dab at it, said Liza in admiration. They tried to induce Mrs. Blakeston to try her luck, but she stoutly refused. I don't hold with such foolishness. It's waste of money to me, she said. Now then, don't crack on, old tart, remarked her husband. Let's go and eat the coconuts. There was one for each couple, and after the ladies had sucked the juice, they divided them and added their respective shares to their dinners and teas. Supper came next. Again, they fell to sausage rolls, boiled eggs and saveloys, and countless bottles of beer were added to those already drunk. I don't know how many bottles of beer I've drunk. I've lost count, said Liza, whereat there was a general laugh. They still had an hour before the break was to start back, and it was then the concertinas came in useful. They sat down on the grass, and the concert was begun by Harry, who played a solo. Then there was a call for a song, and Jim stood up, and sang that ancient ditty, O oh, damn golden kippers O. Oh. There was no shyness in the company, and Liza, almost without being asked, gave another popular comic song. Then there was more concertina playing, and another demand for a song. Liza turned to Tom, who was sitting quietly by her side. Give us a song, old cock, she said. I can't, he answered. I'm not a singing sort. At which Blakeston got up and offered to sing again. Tom is rather a soft, said Liza to herself. Not like that cove, Blakeston. They repaired to the public house to have a few last drinks before the break started, and when the horn blew to warn them, rather unsteadily, they proceeded to take their places. Liza, she scrambled up the steps, said, Well, I believe I'm boozed. The coachman had arrived at the melancholy stage of intoxication, and was sitting on his box holding his reins, with his head bent on his chest. He was thinking sadly of the long-lost days of his youth, and wishing he had been a better man. Liza had no respect for such holy emotions, and she brought down her fist on the crown of his hat, and bashed it over his eyes. Now then, old jelly-belly, she said, what's the good of having a face as long as a kite? He turned round and smote her. Jelly-belly yourself, said he. Puddin' face, she cried. Kite face. Boss I. She was tremendously excited laughing and singing, keeping the whole company in an uproar. In her jollity, she had changed hats with Tom, and he in her big feathers made her shriek with laughter. When they started, they began to sing, For he's a jolly good fella, making the night resound with their noisy voices. Liza and Tom and the Blakestons had got a seat together, Liza being between the two men. Tom was perfectly happy, and only wished that they might go on so forever. 
Gradually, as they drove along, they became quieter, their singing ceased, and they talked in undertones. Some of them slept. Sally and her young man were leaning up against one another, slumbering quite peacefully. The night was beautiful, the sky still blue, very dark, scattered over with countless brilliant stars, and Liza, as she looked up at the heavens, felt a certain emotion, as if she wished to be taken in someone's arms, or feel some strong man's caress, and there was in her heart a strange sensation, as though it were growing big. She stopped speaking, and all four were silent. Then slowly she felt Tom's arm still round her waist, cautiously, as though it were afraid of being there. This time both she and Tom were happy. But suddenly there was a movement on the other side of her. A hand was advanced along her leg, and a hand was grasped and gently pressed. It was Jim Blakeston. She started a little and began trembling so that Tom noticed it, and whispered, You're cold, Liza. Nah, I'm not, Tom. It's only a sort of shiver that went through me. His arm gave her waist a squeeze, and at the same time the big rough hand pressed her little one. And so she sat between them till they reached the red line in the Westminster Bridge Road, and Tom said to himself, I believe she does care for me after all. When they got down, they all said good night, and Sally and Liza, with their respective slaves, and the Blakestons, marched off homewards. At the corner of Veer Street, Harry said to Tom and Blakeston, I say, you blokes, let's go and have another drink before closing time. I don't mind, said Tom, after we've took the gals home. Then we shan't have time, it's just on closing time now, answered Harry. Well, we can't leave him here. Yes, you can, said Sally. No one will run away with us. Tom did not want to part from Liza, but she broke in with, Yes, go on, Tom. Sally and me will get along all right, and you ain't got too much time. Yes, good night, Harry, said Sally to settle the matter. Good night, old gal, he answered. Give us another slobber. And she, not at all unwilling, surrendered herself to him, while he imprinted two sounding kisses on her cheeks. Good night, Tom, said Liza, holding out her hand. Good night, Liza, he answered, taking it, but looking very wistfully at her. She understood, and with a kindly smile, lifted up her face to him. He bent down, and taking her in his arms, kissed her passionately. You do kiss nice, Liza, he said, making the others laugh. Thanks for taking me out, old man, she said as they parted. All right, Liza, he answered, and added to himself, God bless you. Hello, Blakeston, ain't you coming? said Harry, seeing that Jim was walking off with his wife, instead of joining him and Tom. Nah, he answered, I'm going home. I've got to be up at five tomorrow. You are a chap said Harry disgustedly, strolling off with Tom to the pub, while the others made their way down the sleeping street. The house where Sally lived came first, and she left them. Then, walking a few yards more, they came to the Blakestons, and after a little talk at the door, Liza bade the couple good night, and was left to walk the rest of the way home. The street was perfectly silent, and the lampposts far apart, through a dim light, which only served to make Liza realise her solitude. There was such a difference between the street at midday, with its swarms of people, and now, when there was neither sound nor soul besides herself, that even she was struck by it. The regular line of houses on either side, with the even pavements and straight, cemented road, seemed to her like some desert place, as if everyone were dead, or a fire had raged and left it all desolate. Suddenly she heard a footstep, 
She started and looked back. It was a man hurrying behind her. In a moment, she had recognised Jim. He beckoned to her, and in a low voice called, Liza. She stopped till he had come up to her. What have you come out again for, she said. I've come out to say good night to you, Liza, he answered. But you said good night a moment ago. I wanted to say it again, properly. Where's your missus? Oh, she's gone in. I said I was dry and was going to have a drink after all. But she'll know you didn't go to the pub. Nah, she won't. She's gone straight upstairs to see after the kid. I wanted to see her alone, Liza. Why? He didn't answer, but he tried to take hold of her hand. She drew it away quickly. They walked in silence till they came to Liza's house. Good night, said Liza. Won't you come for a little walk, Liza? Take care, no one hears you, she added in a whisper, though why she whispered she did not know. Will you? he asked again. Nah, you've got to get up at five. Oh, I only said that not to go into the pub with them. So as you might come here with me, asked Liza. Yes. No, I'm not coming. Good night. Well, say good night nicely. What do you mean? Tom said you did kiss nice. She looked at him without speaking, and in a moment he had clasped his arms round her, almost lifting her off her feet, and kissed her. She turned her face away. Give us your lips, Liza, he whispered. Give us your lips. He turned her face without resistance and kissed her on the mouth. At last she tore herself from him, and opening the door, slid away into the house. End of chapter 5